Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, keeping your place in the book of Romans. We're just going to look at one verse in 2 Corinthians 5. We looked at that verse last week, and we're going to look at it one more time, and maybe we'll be done with it. I'm not sure. It's a great verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 in the New American Standard Bible reads this way. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, was invited to go to St. Louis to preach a crusade. He didn't think much about himself, actually. He wondered over and over again why God would choose him to be such a blessed man in terms of the fruit that came out of his preaching. He butchered the king's English. He didn't have more than about a fifth or sixth grade education, which was not that uncommon in that day. But he was a humble man. In preparation to go there, he got word that the editor of the leading paper in St. Louis was going to have someone take down every word that he said, and the following morning, the paper would feature his message. And so it did happen. The Word of God was preached, and Moody said, Well, I may do poorly in my oratorical skills, but what I know I can do that will be lasting forever is speak God's Word. Literally, word for word. He chose his text, the passage in Acts 16 about the Philippian jailer who got saved. The headlines of the paper after that first message was, Jailer caught in Philippi. And all of a sudden, that created a lot of interest on the reader's part. He gave the message, and nine times in the message, he quoted this verse. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. At that time, there was a notorious burglar who was jailed in the St. Louis County Jail. His name was Valentine Burke. Burke had spent 20 of his years in some prison one way or the other. At this particular time, he was in solitary confinement awaiting a trial And he was the most profane prisoner of all. He was so angry. When anyone would pass by his cell, he would launch out with angry words, curse words. Even when the sheriff came by and he made his rounds daily, he especially liked cursing the jailer. One of the, excuse me, the sheriff, one of the jailers came the morning after Mr. Moody had preached a sermon and tossed a newspaper through the bars of his cell. He looked at the headlines and says, wow, a jailer caught in Philippi. And then he paused a moment. He thought, I think I know where Philippi is. It's in upstate Illinois. I've been there before. Well, he read the message and he said, this is a bunch of rot, is what he said. But he couldn't put it down. He threw it aside. He came back and he read it again. He read it repeatedly. And he got under conviction of his sin as he read what was there when the jailer said, What must I do to be saved? 
And, of course, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. By midnight, through much travail, many tears, this man had given his life to Christ. He could hardly wait for the jailer to make his round in the morning. Instead of cursing him, being ugly in his speech, angry at him, the jailer was met with a big grin on the face. He'd never seen this man do anything but scowl, much less smile. And he was greeted warmly. And then every other person who passed by got a similar greeting. And then the sheriff, whom he had delighted in cursing, came by. And he said, when greeted by the sheriff, Sheriff, last night I was converted to Jesus Christ as my Lord. The sheriff turned and looked at the jailer nearby and said, Keep an eye on Burke. He's up to something. He's going to try to break out of here today probably. Well, his salvation was real. The time came for him to go to the courtroom. And the judge dismissed the case on a technicality. And he was set free. He didn't really know what to do, but he knew he was not going to go back to a life of burglary. He began looking for a job. He was so bitter. For years, a man who knew nothing but a scowl on his face, so bitter that when he would go to interview, he immediately was a turnoff to those who interviewed because he looked so angry still, even though in his heart that was going, that bitterness was beginning to drain out of his heart. He was unable to get a job in St. Louis, so he thought he would save up enough money to go to New York City because he knew it was a bustling Metropolis and a place where he might find work. He went there. He was there six months, still no work. So he decided to go back to St. Louis, which was his home, in effect. When he arrived there, he received a notification from the sheriff, wondering, how does he know that I'm back? He said, maybe they've got some case against me. They were waiting for me to return, and I'll go. And if I have broken the law, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm just going to say, I'm guilty, and I'll take my punishment, do my time. He was on his way to the courthouse, wondering about what would happen once he got there. And when he arrived there, he was greeted at the entryway by the sheriff himself. And the sheriff said, welcome back, Burke. Come into my office. He came into the office of the sheriff, and the sheriff said, what's been going on? He said, for six months, sheriff, I've been seeking work in New York City, unsuccessfully. And he said, nobody would give me work. Nobody. And then the sheriff said, I know, Burke, I've had you surveilled all six months of that time. I wanted to be clear about this profession of faith you've made in Jesus to see it was for real. And I am convinced is for real. I'm so convinced that today I'm offering you a deputyship in my office. Can you imagine? He gave him a place. This is no made-up story. He gave him a place of service there in the sheriff's office. Within a year, he had been entrusted with a gun. And it was an official pistol, I might add. In addition to that, he was given the most delicate of cases. In that year, late in that year, after he had taken the position, 
D.L. Moody came back for a visit. Not to preach, just to visit the city. And he had been told about this man who was so bitter and angry, who had a long rap sheet about his coming to Christ, and he wanted to meet him. They had not met each other. He got an audience with him in the sheriff's office. When he arrived there, he found him behind his desk, and he was guarding $60,000. He was the person whom the sheriff picked out to protect that money. What a change in this man. What a change. Later in his life, years later, there was another evangelist who was coming to St. Louis, and something happened that caused him not to make the trip. The people who had organized the event were concerned. They had prayed about God moving in a mighty way so people would come to know Jesus through this particular evangelist. And someone said, why don't we ask Burke to preach? And he was asked. He stood. He preached night after night after night. And people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great story, isn't it? It's certainly portrayed as a true story of the grace of God. What is the explanation for such a turnaround? What happened to Valentine Burke? It's what happens to everyone who is born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, that person is a new creature. The old things passed away. The new has come. In an instant, in a jail cell, in solitary, if you will, on a night in 1880, that man's life was irrevocably changed. He gave his life to Christ. Jesus came to indwell him. And he would, from that day forward until his death on earth, he would serve the Lord. He went to heaven. D.L. Moody was already there. I'm sure he was one of those who was happy to greet him when he came to heaven. This passage of Scripture in Romans 6, 1 through 14, is a passage which teaches you and me, now listen carefully, to win over sin in our lives. If you feel like you are constantly, perpetually, indefinitely the person who is dominated by sin, it could be that's true because you have not given your life to Christ. But in a crowd like we have today, that's probably the major minority. But if you do know Christ and you still feel haunted by what you believe is your inability to live up to what God has established for us who are His followers, please pay careful attention. And if you are walking in victory in your spiritual life, pay attention too. Because you can pass this great truth on to other people. The main idea of this passage is found in verse 2 and then again in a different form, in verse 11. So let's read those, and then we'll go back and look at the passage in some detail. Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Romans reads this way, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? There were people in the church at Rome. Remember, Paul had yet to be a participant in the church of Rome. It's one of the few churches to whom he wrote that he didn't have a part to play in the formation of that church. But there were people there, and he knew it, who were saying, look, this whole issue of grace is awesome, because what it means is 
that we can sin all we want and not fear being punished by God for it because He has given us salvation through grace and faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that that's not what this passage or any other place in the Bible teaches about grace. Grace is amazing. It is awesome in terms of its implications in our lives. Hopefully I'll remember to get back to that a little later. Look at verse 2. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin live in it? And then if you'll look at verse 11. Even so consider shelves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses two word pictures, two visual aids to talk about what it means to be dead to sin. How do we die to sin? How can we get to a point in our lives where we're no longer dominated by sin? Let me preface what I'm going to say in answer to that question by taking note of the fact that there is no such thing as sinless perfection. That is to say, there's nobody who reaches a place of total sinlessness in this life, according to what we read in the book of 1 John. We'll get there a little later. At the same time, there is no place for what I alluded to earlier, where people use grace as an excuse to do whatever they want. Neither of those is true. But what Paul does here, he takes two word pictures. The first is baptism, and then the second is the word picture of some kind of plant being grafted in to another plant. It's a horticultural word. So let's begin with the first word picture, which gives us clear insight into what death to sin includes. Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Paul had reason to believe that the believers in the church at Rome would know that all who are baptized have been baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death. And the reason he knew that would be the case is because they had been baptized in water. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now let me stop here just a moment. Have you ever stopped to think the picture which is painted by believers' baptism is such a wonderful depiction of what happens when a person is born again? It replicates what Christ did for us Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And all of that had to do with our salvation. But I would suggest to you today that it takes more than water. It takes something more powerful than a symbolic gesture which depicts how a person is Lord under the water, identifying with Christ in his death and burial, then raised up out of the water, signifying that that person, just as surely as Christ, has been raised from the dead. So that person has been raised to death also because that person is united to Jesus Christ, grafted in, if you were, 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage talks about the purpose behind our being baptized. The purpose is so that we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a shadow of something that is greater. I'm talking about water baptism is a shadow of something much greater. And I am going to suggest to you and show you why I do. I'm sure I'm right about this. That it is a shadow of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that which puts us into Christ. Puts us into the body of Christ. Remembering that Jesus is the head of the church. And we who know Jesus, we are part of that church. And the way we get to be in Christ is through the work of the Holy Spirit in placing us in Him. Please hold your place and go to the next book in your Bible, toward the back, to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 reads this way, For by one Spirit, and this could be equally well translated, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. May I stop here just a moment? And ask you to remember what you know about the church at Corinth. What kind of church was it? Well, it was a church of Christ, for sure. Was it a mature church? It was not a mature church. In fact, it's arguably the least mature of all the churches that we read about in the New Testament. They had all the spiritual gifts. Paul makes this astonishing statement in chapter 1. You lack in no spiritual gift. But then he goes on to say, but you are babies in Christ. You are worldly in your thinking. If we were to put an unbeliever, no one who professes faith in Christ from Corinth up beside you, it would be hard to tell which one was the follower of Christ if we followed you around for a day or two because of your immaturity, your cliquishness, your wanting to group around personalities, your, un, your inability to feed yourself spiritually. You have to have someone to spoon feed you. And you are so jealous and you're full of strife. This was the church that Paul says about they were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. I repeat, the Holy Spirit's the one who puts us in Christ. It is He who unifies us as individuals and us as a church, as a body of believers. He gives us a connection with Jesus Christ in His burial, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We have this union with the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible truth for us. Amazing. Paul explains how we died to sin in this passage of Scripture. The Spirit took us and identified us with all Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. You might say, how in the world did that happen? To us, 2,000 years further down the road. Well, these to whom these words were first written had probably just read and discussed 
what is found in chapter 5, verse 12. Would you look there? Paul is writing, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and who might that be, by the way? Adam, right? Through Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We, the Bible teaches, it teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15 also, we were in Adam, we were in Adam when Adam sinned. That's hard for us to quite picture, but the reality is clear. All of us didn't have to be taught to sin. We were selfish from the get-go, weren't we? We were born with what the Bible calls a sinful nature. And the Bible says about all of us who know Jesus, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We were dead in our sin. We had no life spiritually whatsoever. Paul talks about in the book of 1 Thessalonians that we are three parts. We who know Jesus, we're body, that's obvious, the body. Then we are soul, that's less obvious, but more recognizable when we understand what the soul consists of. It consists of our minds, our feelings, and our wills. But the inner part of who we are And I would suggest if we were to pick one, which is most important, this would be the one. The spirit in us with a little s. This is where God lived in Adam and Eve before they sinned. And he had told them, if you eat of this one tree in the Garden of Eden, you shall die. The serpent came and tempted Eve and asked her about what was going on. And she says, well, God has told us if we eat of that tree... We will surely die. He said, no way, no way, you're not going to die. Because if you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. And she thought about that a moment. She saw the fruit on the tree was delightful to the eyes. And she ate it. And Adam took the fruit. We don't know what kind it is. It's typically portrayed as an apple. I doubt seriously if that's the case. It doesn't really matter because it was forbidden. And he ate it. And they died. Did they die? They lived hundreds of years. They did die, though. Their soul was still alive. They could feel, couldn't they? They hid because they were afraid, as that's what Adam told God when God came looking for him and her. They could think. They could speak. Speech, intelligible speech, is an indication of intelligence, a mind, correct? So, they could feel, they were afraid, they could speak, therefore they had a mind which was not dead, and they had a will they chose to hide. So their soul was intact, even though it was marred by sin. Their bodies were intact, even though it already probably had begun to show the effects of sin. But the spirit where God lived was vacated. It had shriveled up. It was no longer a place of life. Because God is life. It was no longer a place of light because God is light. In that emptiness you felt before you received Christ, or some of you may be here today, you've never really turned your life to Jesus, you will relate clearly to what Pascal, the great French mathematician, philosopher of the 18th century said. He said, every human being is created with a God-shaped vacuum, which only God can fill. And that can only be filled 
by God, right? Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who comes. And in our lives, if we know Him, what has happened? The Holy Spirit's baptized us in Jesus. Jesus has come to indwell us. It's a beautiful thing to think about what has happened to us. Our union with Christ is the truth from which everything about the Christian life stems. It all flows from His life, His presence in our lives. No Jesus, no life in the part that really mostly matters. And that is true. We sang in Christ alone. That's a great song, isn't it? We didn't sing it in this service. We sang it in the early service. I love that song. And one of the lines, it was so, it's so rich theologically and biblically. That is one of the best songs I can think of, hymns of the modern era. And it says, sin has lost its grip on me. That's what happens when a man or woman gives his or her life to Christ. Sin has lost its grip on me. We have died to sin. That's what the Scripture says. And our baptism is a visual aid to help us to understand this. That the Holy Spirit put us into Christ. Therefore, we have union with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. What is true of Christ is true of you and me. It's amazing to think about. What is the purpose of this baptism by the Spirit? Look at the last line of verse 4. So we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. Isn't this awesome to think about? About what God has done in our lives. That leads to the second image that Paul chooses here by guidance from the Holy Spirit. The image of a branch being grafted in to another tree of a different type. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 first. For we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man actually is a word. It says self in the New American Standard, but it translates the word for man. Our old man was crucified with Him. That our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. No longer slaves. Our body of sin. Our bodies are the vehicles through which we sin. By the same token, our bodies are the vehicles whereby we honor the Lord. When we come to Christ, Christ is in us. We're connected to Him. Just like a branch in a vine, we're connected to Him. Or a branch in a tree that's been grafted into a tree. And His life flows freely in our lives. This is the Christian life. Christ in you, the Bible says, the hope of glory. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, almost as an afterthought, we would think when we're reading, there's nothing that's an afterthought in the Bible. We need to pay careful attention to whatever we read because there's... A lot of truth that's so rich that is overlooked. In the fourth verse of Colossians 3, this is what Paul writes the church at Colossae. He says, Christ, who is your life? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Without Jesus, you would have no life. 
That life is dynamic and powerful. His presence in our lives makes it possible for us not to any longer be mastered by sin. We were slaves to sin. That's what the Scripture says here. But now, he who has died is freed from sin. The word freed is a judicial term of Paul's day. And it means acquitted. We've been acquitted from all our sin if we're in Christ. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person will have no condemnation. That's what the Bible says. There is therefore now no condemnation. Punishment for a crime that was a capital offense, actually. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? If we know Jesus Christ, there's no penalty for our sin. It's awesome to think about what has happened to us. We're to walk in newness of life. Christ's life becomes our life. We're no longer in Adam. That tie has been broken. Praise the Lord. We are in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, I don't know if you've noticed it. If you're a reader of the Bible, and I think many of you, if not most of you are, you will notice how frequently that phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, or in Him, shows up in the Scripture. Do you know over 160 times it's used? There's an entire book written by a a scholar by the name of James Stewart. It's entitled, A Man in Christ. And he's talking primarily about the Apostle Paul. He raises the possibility, and I think he proves it, that that was the way Paul saw himself. I'm a man in Christ. Well, you know, if you're a woman, you're a woman in Christ. If you know Jesus, you're a woman in Christ. And everything that is true of Jesus Christ is now true of you. Look at verses 8 and following. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Amen? We died with Him, and after He died, did He stay dead? He did not, did He? He raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And the same is true for us. We will live with Him. Look at 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Notice Paul does not say he died for sin. We know Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel, isn't it? We know Christ died for sin, but he died to sin. Sin was something that he dealt with when he was on the cross. He was a perfect human being. He had to be... God, in order to be perfect, and because he was a perfect man, God, he was able to pay the sin debt which we had. But this is talking about sin not having anything over him. After he finished his time on the cross, he was buried, he was raised again, never to be phased by sin again. What would that tell you about you and me? If we are in Christ... Will we be free from the mastery of sin, in theory at least? That's what this Scripture teaches. And it's the key that unlocks the door to victorious living, quite frankly. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith is what 1 John 5 says. He who is born of God has overcome the world. 
That's John's way of saying he who has been raised from the dead with Christ, identified with Christ, has overcome the world, not because of anything she or he did, but because of what Christ did for us. Let me remind you of what we saw last week. God initiated your salvation. God is the one who sanctifies you. He makes you more and more like Jesus Christ as you move through this life. He's the one who will eventually glorify you. That is, to free you not only from the penalty of sin as He did when you were justified, made right through the blood of Jesus Christ, appropriating that to yourself. Not only from the power of sin. This is what this passage teaches us. We are no longer under the power of sin. If we know Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ and you still languish in the backwaters of the tyranny of sin. And I'm not just talking about the act itself. I'm talking about the guilt that comes with it. We're going to see here in just a moment what Paul says to wind this passage of Scripture up. But we need to understand Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to talk a minute or two on the word consider. It was a bookkeeping term. It was a word used to describe the evaluation of something's worth. It was a word which was used to describe the working on the books, if you will, to get them right. To know just how much profit or how much loss you had. That's the word. It was also used in philosophical circles to talk about that which was objective and not emotional reasoning. Strictly out of the head. No emotion. What these two uses have in common is that they both have to do with facts. Facts. And so when... Paul writes this when he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. What he would have been understood to be saying by his hearers, his readers, was, it's a fact that you are dead to sin. That's a fact. And you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. These are facts. And by the way, this is very important for you and me to overcome sin in our lives. We have to first be sure we're in Christ, but then secondly, once we know we have trusted Christ, we have yielded our lives to Him, we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been saved, then we need to take ourselves back here to this verse every once in a while. It'd be really wise to memorize it and say it. It'll be something that will be a very important point to you in your Victory over sin as you really, I'm going to use a word that's not often used, appropriate the truth. Make it yours. Make this your truth. If you know Christ, you are one who is entitled to make this yours because of what God has done for you. And then verses 12 and 13. My tendency is to want to skip these first 11 verses because they're, they're kind of difficult to understand. They're not as exciting as what we're about to read. And these two or three verses, you may not find them exciting. But I liked when the Scripture gets to that part which has application. Do you like that? I like that. But do you know this is the first time, verse 11, which we just read, it's the first time in 
the book of Romans that Paul has given a command. That came as a surprise to me when I was preparing this message. First time, he gives a command. He's laying the foundation for us so that we understand who God is, what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, who we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. This is all awesome to think about. Well, here's what we can do in response to what He has done for us and in us and wants to do through us. I want you to hold your place here. And if you don't want to go to 1 John, it's okay. But I want to look at a couple of verses in chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. No one who abides in Christ sins. Now, let me stop here just a moment. The English translations, generally speaking, are not fully expressive of what is actually said in the language of the New Testament. This is what it literally says, no one who keeps abiding in Christ sins. No one who keeps sinning has seen Christ or knows Christ. Now, look at verse 9. No one who is born of God keeps on practicing sin because God's seed abides in him. Who would be the seed of God? Jesus is the seed of God. His seed abides, God's seed, the Father, in us who know Christ. And he cannot keep on sinning is the proper translation because he or she is born of God. The presence of Jesus' spirit in your spirit is a guarantee that you will not keep on sinning. It's not as though you don't have a will. It's not that. But His presence in you will move you forward. Do you remember what we saw last week from Ezekiel 36, 27? What God said, I will put my spirit in you and move you to obey me. That's what He says. That's true for us who know Christ. It's good news to know that the seed of God, Jesus, is doing that in our lives. We sin. I don't know. Maybe you don't. I'm just going to say, I still sin. I don't, I'm not proud of that at all. I don't brag about it. I don't like it. I hate, hate it when I sin. Sin may be pleasant for a season, is what the Bible said, but it's not a good deal if you know Jesus. The Holy Spirit's all over that in my life when I sin. And I want to get right with God, and I can't. Well, how do we do it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's awesome to think about, isn't it? Tremendous. I remember one sin that I particularly wrestled with. I was in college and I wrestled with this sin. I kept begging God, take it away, God, take it away. I prayed every day, take it away, take it away. Do you know what He did? He eventually took it away. One day I woke up and I thought, you know, I hadn't done that in a few days. That's pretty cool. God did it. But I kept coming and coming. I still was practicing that sin, not all the time. But God, as I confessed it to Him over and over and asked Him to take it away, He took it away. I believe He wants that for all of us, for sure. But how are we to do this? We're not to let sin reign in our mortal body. That means stop letting it reign. 
in your mortal body that you should obey us and do not go on presenting the members that would be the parts of your body to sin as instruments. The word instrument literally is the word weapon, as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. We begin by presenting ourselves, Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable act of worship. And then the individual parts of our body. Who lives in us? Let's stop just a moment before I finish. Who lives in us? His seed. Who is His seed? Jesus. What kind of life did Jesus live when He walked on the earth? He was filled with the Spirit. And in Acts 10.38, it says, He went about doing good. What are some of the things Jesus did with His body, with His eyes? I am amazed. I've begun to think about this recently. How many times in the New Testament the Gospels say Jesus saw someone and he did something about it? It was always positive. He saw someone and he did something about it. Our eyes can be used in treacherous ways, but one way that we can use our eyes is to see people like when Jesus saw the hungry multitude who had come to hear him teach, he saw that they got fed. Or when he saw a woman who was bent over Because for many years, teens of years, she had been under the domination of the devil. And he gave her life. He touched people who nobody else wanted to touch with their hands. Because to touch people like lepers, and he was quick to do that. He touched them and he healed them. But in so doing, he made himself contaminated. He could not do the rituals of the temple could not participate. Jesus' feet went where people needed to know Jesus. He brought the gospel. We have that same opportunity. We need to use our eyes, our mouths, our ears. You name the part of your body, your mind especially. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. Where is that mind found? In the Scripture. We have the mind of Christ. And we can trust Christ to reproduce his life through us. As a man thinks, the Bible says in Proverbs, so is he, and the same would be true for a woman. So is she. What we think determines what we say and what we do. So that's really the best thing we do. We need to have our minds renewed. Well, let me finish by looking at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's a great word, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but let me just say this. When you sin, if you don't understand grace, sin can do a big number on you. And I hope I've made it clear, I'm not in any way trying to dismiss sin as being a no-brainer, something we don't need to do due diligence toward avoiding, and when committing, we need to do the right thing by confessing and repenting. But, when you're under grace, you're forgiven, not just of some sin, but all your sin. That's what the Bible says. When you know Christ, you've been forgiven. His Spirit convicts us when we are sinning. We get right with Him, and He doesn't keep you on probation. He restores you and restores me.
So here is a great message, not from my mouth, but in this passage of Scripture and other places. That we have died to sin and we have been raised from the dead to be with Christ who also is raised and we're unified with Him. Let's pray. Father, we ask You that You would help us to be men and women who are careful in our lives doing what we know we're to do so we will not sin, but then quickly repenting of it when we know that we have. We pray for a victory, Lord, over false understanding about who we are in Christ. Help us to have a sane estimate of who you have made us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.